past few weeks, we've been in the prophets section of the, the story, which is a book that we've been using to help us actually go chronologically through the Bible. And we've looked at Isaiah, we've looked at Jeremiah, we also looked at Elijah. And today we're going to focus on the book of Daniel. But we're actually not going to focus so much on Daniel himself. We know a lot about Daniel, the Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends that were thrown in the fiery furnace, and, and God protected them through that. But we're going to actually concentrate more on King Nebuchadnezzar in this story, because when we look at his life, we're going to see a lot of similarities to our own. Back in the mid-90s, we had a young mother respond to invitations to attend our Vacation Bible School program, which is a kids program that we have each summer. And her kids had never been in church before. And when I went to pick up Christopher that second day, his mother took me aside and she said, uh, I told Christopher that he's going to God's house and that he's to be really good in God's house. And he knows that you're in charge there, so he kind of thinks you're God. And could you explain that to him? So I get into the car, Christopher gets in beside me. Good morning, God. This, this feels pretty good. And then a little later in the morning, he goes, Excuse me, God, but do you know where the bathroom is? Of course I do. I'm God. I'm all-knowing. I, I know everything. And then, God, I'm getting kind of hungry. Somebody said there's a snack time here at some point. I said, just hang on, Christopher. So, you know, the, the ego part of me found it kind of hard to straighten Christopher out. Like, let him keep thinking this. Call me God. It felt kind of good. But then shortly after that, he and his mom and little brother moved away. But he was a neat kid. The Three Christs of Ypsilanti is a book-length psychiatric study. It was written in 1964 and it was actually in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And there were three patients that this doctor wrote each head. And they all thought that they were God in the flesh. So the doctor figured, okay, what I'll do, I'll get them all together, I'll have them do life together, and see if they then realize, hey, there can't be three of us. But he said it didn't work very well. It was kind of confusing. Because they'd be in a session together, the, the four of them, and one would speak up and he would say, I've been sent here by God to save the world. And the psychiatrist would say, well, how do you know that? Well, God told me. I never told you any such thing. One of the other guys would pipe up. So it was confusing, and he actually wasn't able to do anything. But he wrote a whole book about his efforts. You know, if that's all it takes to be considered mentally unstable, then a lot of us are probably close to being committed. Because we often live in the very same way, as if the universe is all about us. When we look at the way we live, when we look at, at the way we act, when we look at how we treat other people, we look at our spending habits, our control issues, when you know we've got to be in charge of everything, it certainly seems like we've placed ourselves in God's place. Now last week we talked about idolatry. And we realize that idolatry is when we put something or someone in God's rightful place as the number one person in our hearts. And we think of idolatry as antiquated, as something you know, we don't really have to deal with right now. But actually, idolatry is more prevalent in our society than it ever has been. Like we don't make gold 
statues and that type of thing, but we look at our lives and we see that there are all kinds of God substitutes. Instead of looking to God, we look to power, we look to money, we look to success, entertainment, food, other people, and we could just go on. I could keep you here all afternoon with the list of things that we will place as number one in our lives instead of God. And the invitation of all these false gods is you can do whatever you want. You can worship yourself if that's what you want to do. So we end up putting ourselves in the place of God. We say, I'm in charge of my life. And as we've studied through the Old Testament, we've seen that over and over again, God takes this seriously. He doesn't want us to have someone else in his place in our lives. Because when we look to that person or thing to do for us what God wants us to do, we're in danger. But King Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful man who thought of himself as God. And whenever he captured a neighboring country, he would take the best of the young men and he would bring them into his palace and he would basically use them as advisors to himself. He would train them up. So Daniel was maybe 15, 16 years of age when Jerusalem was taken by the Babylonians. And Nebuchadnezzar brought him and his friends into the palace. And Daniel, he was a sharp young guy. He, he was a smart young man. So he goes to serve this foreign king. And Nebuchadnezzar was powerful. He was the most powerful man throughout the whole Mediterranean world at that time. And no one was more feared than he was. And no one thought more of himself than Nebuchadnezzar either. So this is who Daniel has to go serve. This man that has put himself on the throne. And there was another prophet during that time, and this prophet's name was Ezekiel. And Ezekiel speaks up, and he paints a picture of what it's going to be like if we put someone else on that throne instead of God. So Ezekiel 28, verse 2. The Eternal One speaking said, Son of man, go to the princess of Tyre and give him this message. This is what I, Eternal Lord, have said, or have to say. Your heart is swollen with pride, a pride that says, I am a God. I sit on a divine throne in the heart of the sea. But I assure you, Prince, you are nothing more than a mortal man, a man of mortal destiny. Even though you have the self-confidence of a God, you are made entirely of flesh and blood. So you need to listen to that message that Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn this morning. And I hope that we leave here changed as a result of this. And the thing we need to realize is there is a God and we're not Him. There is a God and we're not Him. And that seems obvious. If you're taking notes this morning on my message, it doesn't even seem like the type of thing that you need to jot down on a sheet of paper. Like there is a God and we're not Him. But then we start to look at our lives. We start to look at the way we're living. And it becomes kind of clear that God isn't number one in our lives. Well, there's an inventory called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. And that's twice. Like, I only have two services. I got through that word both times. But the person taking this inventory is asked to rate each statement on a scale of one to five, whether they agree or disagree. 
questions like this. If I ruled the world, it would be a better place. So they answer one to five. I think I'm a special person. Once again, one to five. I can live any way I want, and no one has the right to tell me what to do. One to five. I can be anything I want to be if I really work at it. One to five. And psychologists say that now they see a huge increase in the scores that people are giving because it's this mentality of it's all about me. The world will be a better place because I would be in control of it. And one psychologist said that children are being raised in an environment where they're told that they're special and we don't talk about their shared responsibility to others. And what does that lead to? It leads to this is all about me. So Nebuchadnezzar certainly wanted everyone to know how important and how special and how powerful he was. And Zedekiah was another king of Israel that he captured. And look at Jeremiah chapter 39 and see what he did to this man. Zedekiah was forced to watch as his own sons and the nobles of Judah were slaughtered right in front of him. This was the very last thing he saw because Nebuchadnezzar then blinded the eyes of Zedekiah. This blinded and humiliated king was then placed in bronze shackles and carried off to Babylon. Like, this is King Nebuchadnezzar. The man is a tyrant. Like, he's evil. And we saw how he captured Judah, how he destroyed Jerusalem. And then it blows us away because when we get to Daniel chapter 4, we realize that these words were actually written by Nebuchadnezzar. And there's nothing more shocking than to hear the words that he says, to hear these words come from this man. So Daniel 4, starting in the first verse. One day Nebuchadnezzar sent out a herald with a message for all the peoples, nations, and languages of the earth. And here was the message. May peace and prosperity be yours. I am pleased to be able to tell you about all the signs and miracles the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how powerful are his miracles. His kingdom will endure forever. His reign will last from generation to generation. But this guy has become a worship leader. Like he's writing worship songs. This tyrant is now singing songs of praise to God. And we wonder, like, what happened? This doesn't fit with anything else that we know about this king. But Nebuchadnezzar tells us what happened in his life. And he said that he had a very painful lesson that he had to learn. And the lesson was, there is a God, and I'm not him. So in verses 4 and 5, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace. Things were going well, and I was prospering. So he's surrounded by his army, and he's in a palace that is 630,000 square feet. I didn't take the time to figure out how big of a block that would be in our city. But the man is secure. He has no worries whatsoever. But then the real God pays him a visit. Then one night, I had a dream that terrified me. As I rested that night on my bed, the images in my mind, the visions in my head disturbed me greatly, and I could not shake the fear. So the king actually has a dream about this fabulous tree. But then the tree is full of fruit that's plentiful, it shelters birds and animals. It's a big, beautiful tree. And then in verse 13, but that was not all. 
The visions kept coming as I lay there on my bed, and I saw a heavenly messenger, a holy watcher, coming down from heaven. He shouted out orders regarding the tree. Cut down the tree and top off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let all the wild animals beneath it run away, and all the birds of its branches fly away. But leave its stump intact, its roots in the ground, strapped down with iron and bronze, surrounded by the tender grass of the field. Let the dew of heaven fall heavy on it every night, and make it wet, and let him live off the plants of the earth among the wild animals. Let his human heart be changed, exchanged for the heart of a wild animal, until seven times have come and gone. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he knows it's not good. He knows it's not whatever he ate the night before. This, this is something really horrible. So he calls out to all his wise men, to his diviners, to get them to come in and interpret this dream for him. He shares the dream with them, but nobody has a clue about the interpretation of it. So then finally Daniel, this exile from Jerusalem is brought in to hear and explain the dream. But Nebuchadnezzar can see that Daniel is really troubled by the dream. And he says, it's okay, go ahead, tell me what the interpretation is. And see, Nebuchadnezzar is still thinking, this is about someone else, it's not about me. Go ahead, give the bad news. So Daniel says, okay, you're the tree that's about to get chopped down to size. So now we skip down to verse 25. You will be driven away from all that is human and live in the company of wild animals. You will be forced to eat grass like oxen, and night after night the dew of heaven will fall on you and make you soaking wet. Seven times will pass until you learn your lesson and acknowledge that it is the Most High God and no other who is the true sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and he grants authority to anyone he wishes. So you're going to live like a wild animal, you're going to live that way until you recognize who is to be on the throne of your life. There is a God, and you're not him. That is what he had to realize. But Nebuchadnezzar, as we see in a few minutes, just kind of blows this off because it's not going to concern me. I'm too powerful for all of this. So what we're going to do now is just ask a couple questions of Nebuchadnezzar's life. And we're going to personalize these a little because how we answer these questions might actually reveal that we're a little more like Nebuchadnezzar than we would like to admit. The God of me might be more prevalent than we think. So the first question is, what's your motivation? Why do you do what you do? Like for King Nebuchadnezzar, his whole life was motivated by himself, by his own glory, and his, his actual desire to impress other people. Like in Daniel chapter 3, we read that he built this gold statue. It was 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. We don't know if it was of himself or some foreign god or whatever, but he had that built to demonstrate his power so that everyone would recognize that he was in control. And then he also had a wife that he wanted to impress. So he had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, built to impress her. And wouldn't that be impressive on your resume? Like you're applying for a job, you know, uh, took calculus and all this stuff. 
built the hanging gardens of Babylon. That would be impressive. But he had a lot going for him. But he was constantly trying to prove himself. It was all about his glory. So why do you do what you do? Now, I'm not asking about your job. Why do you work at what you do? But why do you wear what you wear? Why do you live where you live? Why do you drive what you drive? Why do you sit with the people that you sit with? For many of us, our lives are actually aligned around our glory, trying to impress other people. And the motivation is to make us look good, to make other people be impressed with us, to actually be in regards to our own majesty. But we don't use that language. But if we were to be objective and we were to step away from it, isn't that what we actually do? And the section... The, sec, uh, the second question is, what's the source of my strength, the source of my success? So you look at Nebuchadnezzar's life, and he gives all the credit to himself. So in verse 30, the king uttered foolish words. Nebuchadnezzar said, isn't Babylon a great city? I have built this royal residence from the ground up with my own might and ingenuity to honor my own majesty. When we pursue greatness through self-empowerment, through giving ourselves the credit, then we officially become our own God. And that's idolatry, idolatry defined, taking the glory that rightfully belongs to God. And here's something that many of us do in our lives. We take the credit for something good that's happening in our lives, and we blame God when something bad is happening. Now, most people think that Prince Edward Island is flat. I grew up in an area there that's not flat. And going from Hunter River to Fredericton, which is just two and a half miles, it's in the area I grew up in, it actually goes from sea level to 500 feet above sea level. So when you were a kid and you were biking, that was a heavy hill to take on. And PEI has all kinds of wind. We discovered it yesterday. A group of us went over to be in the Maritime Christian College and also Canoe Cove Christian Camp fundraising tournament, golf tournament. And the wind was always in your face. And I grew up back when it was the long hair days in the mid to early 70s. And every time you went outside, came back in, you had to comb your hair. And I'm thinking, that's why it's getting kind of thin on the top. I had to comb it so much. But one time, I was getting out of my car and a gust of wind just caught the door. I didn't have a very good grip on it. And banged it into the car beside me. And I'm thinking, oh, no. I had a couple of accidents as a 16-year-old. I'm 18 at this time. I think I'm going to have to pay for this with cash. But I called the insurance agent anyway. And after I exchanged information with the other owner. And, uh, and he goes, tell me about it. And I told him how the wind just kind of pulled it out of my hand. And he said... You're not to blame for that. And I said, I'm not to blame. The other guy was actually in a store shopping when my car door hit his car. But they said, no, but it's an act of God. We'll put this through comprehensive insurance. So if a stone hits your windshield, that's an act of God. And if a deer jumps out, that happened to me as well. Jumps out onto the road and I hit it, that that's an act of God. If there's a hurricane, that's an act of God. If there's a tornado, or anything bad like that, a fire, any of those things, 
we refer to them as active, an act of God, don't we? And we're comfortable using that language. But if it's a blessing, if there's goodness, if there's prosperity, but we take credit for it. We say, look at what I've done. I've worked really hard to accomplish this. Or, or look at how I've climbed the ladder. Like, it's all about me. So King Nebuchadnezzar is about to learn that it wasn't all about him. And it wasn't all for his glory. So Habakkuk is another of these nine major prophets that we're looking at. And in chapter 1, verse 11 of his book, he said, Then they sweep past like the wind, and go on, guilty people. And then here we go. Whose own strength is their God. So they look to their own strength to be their source of power, to kind of put the pieces together in their lives. And Habakkuk says, you know what? They appear for a little while, and then they get blown away very quickly because they are looking to themselves as the secret of their own success. And that was Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what's the purpose of your life? Like, what are you really chasing after? Like, for Solomon and for Nebuchadnezzar, it was the pursuit of satisfaction. Like, how else do you explain a 630,000 square foot palace? Like, I'm sure they just kept adding on. Let's put another 50,000 foot wing on over there, and another 50,000 square foot wing over there. He just kept constantly building and building, trying to find satisfaction. And the irony is, the harder that you pursue happiness, the more elusive it becomes. The faster you chase after it, the more quickly it seems to just run away from you. So when we make happiness our God, we're always going to be hungry. We're going to be searching after it, but never actually finding it. I read about a 26-year-old young woman named Katie Kane, and she had a disorder that causes her to never feel full. It's called Prater-Willi syndrome, and it affects 20,000 people in the world. So it's actually a dangerous disorder because you could literally eat yourself to death. But she eats and eats and then still doesn't feel full. Nothing works. She's still hungry. Like there are three young guys that hang around my house quite a bit that might have a little case of that, but they're, they're never full. But that's Nebuchadnezzar's story. But he's heading for an encounter with the real God, the one that can only give him the satisfaction and the happiness he's looking for. So Daniel says, okay, you're going to live like an animal for some time. You're going to be in the wilderness. You're going to chew on grass just like a cow. And just think of the courage that it took for Daniel, who is in exile, to speak to the king of the country that captured his country. Like, it might have been so easy for him to just say, oh, well, king, you know, there's this really big tree out on the back property. And it's infested with some kind of bugs. And if we don't do something about it, those bugs are going to get into the surrounding gardens. And eventually they'll get to the hanging gardens of Babylon and mess them up. And you don't want that. They won't become one of the wonders of the world. We've got to do something about that tree. Cut it down and clean it up. But Daniel instead said, uh, you're not going to want to hear this, but here it is. And he doesn't stop there. He actually tells the king what he needs to do. So we're picking up in verse 27. So, O king, please accept my advice to you. 
Make a clean break with your sins and invest in what is right. Bring an end to your wicked deeds and show mercy to those you have beaten down. If you do, perhaps your future will be different and your prosperity will continue. I just love that courage that he shows in saying this to the king who conquered his people. He says, here's what you need to do. But King Nebuchadnezzar, he just kind of shrugs it off. Like, and that's no surprise because he's got the God of me firmly sitting on the throne of his heart. And, and when we have that sitting on our throne, it's always whispering, the rules don't apply to you. Or you're not going to get caught for this. You're too good for this. You know, maybe they're going to suffer some consequences, but not you. Or if you can keep living this way, that's all right. You can live any way you want. But look at verse 33. Instantly, the heavenly decree against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from all that is human and began to eat grass as oxen do. The dew of heaven fell and drenched his body. In time, his hair grew as long as the feathers on an eagle, and his nails grew long and curved back on his hand like the claws of a bird. So he's basically living like a wolf man here. And it's for years. And here's the message. When these days of exile came to an end, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up toward heaven and came to my senses. I blessed the Most High God and praised and gave glory to the one who lives eternally. His reign will endure forever. His kingdom will last from generation to generation. So the moment that his sanity is restored, does he go back to talking about himself and how powerful he is? No, he goes immediately and he sings worship and praise songs to God, declaring that God is great, declaring that God is powerful, and that it's all about his glory. So his life purpose changed from pursuing more and more for himself to giving more and more glory to God, to telling of God's greatness to all the people in the world. But look at what it took to get him off that throne of his own heart. And what is it going to take for you? What do you have to experience in life in order to realize that you're not in the driver's seat, that God is in the driver's seat, that there's only one God and you're not Him? I'm going to be honest. If you're doing things your way, it's not going to work for you. It might seem like it is for a while. You might begin to amass a fortune. Things might be going well with your family and everything else. But there's going to come a point when that comes crashing down. And you don't want to wait for that point. You don't want to have to go to that point where God steps in to show that He is indeed in control. The power doesn't belong to you. And there will be certain things that you can't fix. In the pride of your heart, you can say, I'm going to hold on to the controls, but eventually you're going to lose control altogether. So I don't know what it's going to take for you to realize that Lord, the Lord is God. But there's going to be a day when we'll all see it. Because the Bible says that on the second coming of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's going to happen at some point, so don't wait till then. Make that decision now. Make Jesus the Lord of your life. Would you bow